Um, do keep your uh, Bibles open at uh, Isaiah 7, because actually it's much more important that you see what God has to say to you this morning than what I have to say, uh, muted or otherwise, and um, with God's Word open in front of us. And let me pray for us that we'd hear His voice. Our dearest Heavenly Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. What we are not, please make us. For Jesus' sake, amen. Okay, here's a question for you to get you going. Uh, How do you know what is on the inside of a can? I mean, it's really simple, isn't it? You just, you check the label. So if I was to show you this can this morning, you'd know straight away, wouldn't you, what's inside there? It's baked beans. Or if you were to go to your cupboards at home and you were to pull out this can, then, uh, I mean, you might be like, oh, rolling your eyes going, what will they think of next? But you would know. You'd be in no doubt. Inside, it's Christmas dinner soup. Some of you are super excited about, sorry, no pun intended, super excited about that. Uh, But then, let's just say you go back to your cupboard, you pull this out. Well, you might be wondering, who on earth did the shopping? And you might slightly lose your appetite. But once again, it wouldn't be hard to tell what the contents are. But what if you're presented with a can that there was no label for? It's being peeled off. How could you tell what's on the inside of that? Well, there's the boring way, isn't there? Which is to go get the tin opener. Um, Or if you've got one of those cans, it's got a little pop thing. And do that and have a peek inside. Or there's the exciting way, which is to get a hydraulic pressure um, thingy, Bob, whatever you call it. (laughs) And, And to apply pressure both sides until, and what happens? Boom! Explodes, putting smoked rattlesnake all over your kitchen or whatever was in there. It'll just go everywhere, won't it? I really, really wanted to do a visual demonstration. I know some of you are disappointed I didn't do a demonstration of that uh, this morning, but I was um, pretty sure folks in the front row here wouldn't have been too keen on that, wouldn't have appreciated it. But here's another question to make you sit up a little bit straighter. How do you find out what's on the inside of a person? Don't worry, I'm not thinking hydraulic press for this one. (laughs) No, but I think our true selves are similarly revealed in situations of great pressure. I I mean, put us on a beach with lots of sun and no stress, and we will come across as the nicest, kindest, most chilled person you have ever met on the planet. But, Drop us into the metro center or down on Northumberland Street doing last-minute Christmas shopping amongst the crowds over the next few weeks. Or in a few weeks' time, put us in amongst all of our nearest and dearest, some of whom we don't see that often and maybe don't even get on that well with. And the turkey isn't cooking and someone suggests, let's play a board game. And you can tell me, So you're blue in the face. It's the most wonderful time of the year. But we all know that that is where our hearts will really be exposed. Now, some of us want to (laughs) deny that and actually say the opposite. No, 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 no. That's not the real me. (laughs) Uh, It's just the circumstances. 
But let's be honest, come on. When the pressure gauge is turned up, that is when our hearts reveal themselves and what's on the inside comes bursting out. And as we step into this section of the book of Isaiah we're looking at over the next um, three weeks in the run-up to Christmas, that's what we find. A people under pressure. Times are hard. Stress is high and the anxiety levels are off the chart. And in the midst of this crisis, the big question is, will their hearts be exposed as faith-filled or faithless? Let's look firstly at the pressure God's people are under as we dive into that. Have a look with me at verse 1, please. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remelah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Okay, what is going on here? Clearly, this is not set in 21st century Newcastle, is it? So I think we have to hop into our TARDIS and do a little bit of time travel back in order to get our bearings. We find ourselves there, therefore, in the year 375 BC. And there's basically two nations, Syria and Ephraim, more commonly known in the Bible usually as Israel, ganging up on a third nation, Judah. Why? Why are they doing that? That's because lurking stage left is a fourth nation, Assyria, the major superpower of the day flexing their muscles, reaching, grabbing, dominating anything and anyone that moved, including Syria and Ephraim. So they've teamed up to throw off the shackles of Assyria, but they can't do it on their own. So they come knocking on Judah, asking for some help. But Ahaz, the king of Judah, he says, nah, no, we're not joining your team. So Ephraim and Syria march south, as verse 7 explains, to give Ahaz the old hippo and install their own puppet king, a fellow called the son of Tabil, who will then bring Judah into their military alliance. Still with me? Hopefully. But now, Syria and Ephraim, they're camped on the front lawn of Judah. They're they're, they're right outside the city gates of Jerusalem, the, the capital city. Their armies and weapons are clearly in view. The threat facing King Ahaz and his people is absolutely clear. So it's no wonder, verse 2 tells us, that the heart of Ahaz and his people shook as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. They're rattled. And rightly so. And the big question is, as it is for all of us when we're under serious pressure like this, will they cry out to the Lord their God to save them, or will they turn somewhere else, like Assyria? I mean, after all, God doesn't seem to be doing that much for them, and Assyria, with all of their technological advances and their military might, they look like a better bet. I suspect that many of us can relate to this dilemma. Not that you've got two you know, warring armies camped on your front lawn. I I suspect it's more snow you've got there at the moment. But inevitably, the Lord brings us into moments of crisis. 
in order to test our faith. Circumstances encircle us which cause us to doubt him. And obedience to his commands start to look foolish as everything in the culture around us cries out to us incessantly. Oh, people don't think that anymore. People don't live like that anymore. People don't believe in God anymore. And the pressure rises. Staying faithful to God appears like a dead end. And so we're tempted to pull back from trusting God and, and, and switch allegiance to what the media says as TV, advertising, films, mainstream journalism paint us this beautiful and compelling picture of a life lived without God that looks kind of fairer and more fulfilling and happier on first glance. But then there's our money. Money has such a pull, doesn't it? Surely if we work really hard and we stash as much away as we can get, it will protect us when the storms hit. And then, again, what about a life partner and, and the prospect of family? The roots of family are so strong, aren't they? That they often make us feel way more secure than the Lord does. So what do we need when the pressure is real and unrelenting? What will help us to keep trusting the Lord when the temptation to switch allegiance to someone or something other than him feels too strong? We need to hear what God graciously provides King Ahaz, I think. We need to hear, secondly, the promises God's people are given. The first one is in verse 3. The Lord God said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Ahaz is out checking the city's defenses where the water supply is. He's not thinking about God. He's just thinking about how he can save his people from being wiped out. But God does want to save him and the people. So he sends Isaiah to go out and meet him, and he says, take your son along. And this lad isn't tagging along because it's you know, some early form of bring your child to work day or because he's you know, kicking around in the holidays with nothing to do and the PlayStation hasn't been invented yet. No. God has a purpose in the lad going with Isaiah on this royal visit. And the purpose is made clear in his name. Shia Jashub as you'll see from the footnotes right at the bottom of your Bibles if you've got them open. That name means a remnant will return. You see, Isaiah's son is a walking visual aid. Uh, I mean, just imagine the scene as Isaiah strolls up to Ahaz on the Washersfield Road. Hey, Ahaz, how's it going? Have you met my son? A remnant will remain? Allow me to introduce you to him. King Ahaz, a remnant will remain. A remnant will remain. King Ahaz. Do you see? A remnant will remain. It would be such a powerful moment for King Ahaz. God is saying, Ahaz, listen, God's people will never be wiped out. They'll never be destroyed. I will build my church, and even the gates of hell cannot overcome it. 
This business of a, of a remnant is a huge theme in the book of Isaiah. Many of God's people are deaf to God's word and disobedient to God's ways and will be swept away in judgment. But a smaller number, a smaller faithful remnant will survive. The question in chapter 7 of Isaiah is, will that be Isaiah? Will he be part of the remnant or will he be one of the rejectors? Will he be a man of faith or of fear? Well, God really wants him to be a man of faith, which is why he goes on to give him a second promise in verse 4 saying, be quiet, be, sorry, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stubs of firebrands, the fierce anger of resin and Syria, the son of, and the son of Ramallah. Month ago, my family and I uh, spent um, October half term at a lovely cottage with this, with, with this wood burner in the living room. Oh, it was so toasty. I tell you, could do with it on a day like today, couldn't, couldn't you? But, but once that wood burner got hot, I tell you, it was seriously hot. You, you've got to really approach it and open it up and, and handle the wood with serious amounts of care. But once you could see that it was just getting down to a few smoldering stubs in there, you knew the fire would not last long. It would soon be ashes. And that is true of anyone who comes up against the Lord God and his people. They may look hot and fierce, totally overwhelming right now, but soon they will be gone. And so in the verses that follow, the Lord reassures Ahaz that his worst case scenario will not happen. And that he's even set a drop dead date for Ephraim. And history tells us that God kept his word in three years' time. Syria was crushed. In ten, Ephraim was, um, fell, af- fell, fell ten years later. And 65 years later, around 670 BC, the nation of Ephraim was destroyed once and for all. But again, will Ahaz listen? Will he believe? Remember, at this point, Ahaz is seriously considering a political alliance with Assyria, the superpower. He thinks it's his own only option, and perhaps from a human perspective, it was. Trusting in God's word often seems crazy in a world that seems stronger and more powerful than us. But according to the prophet Isaiah, that is the only option for success for us as well as for Ahaz. So, the end of verse 9, he says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. You will not stand. Oh yes, maybe Assyria will come and deal with those other nations and the immediate threat will disappear and you'll think you'll be free. But you start making deals with someone like Assyria. You start making deals with the world. And a much greater danger will inevitably bear down on you. Someone has said that what's going on here is a, is a little bit like a mouse being attacked by two rats and then squeaking to the cat and asking them to come and help. 
I mean, yeah, the cat comes and deals with the rats. But what do you think is going to happen next? <laughs> He's going to have the mouse for pudding, isn't he? No matter how desperate you are, if you're a mouse, you don't go calling to the cat to come and solve your problems, do you? And you certainly don't turn to the world for help when the Lord God Almighty is on, on your side and he has made promises to you to be on your side. He longs to save you from being eaten, by, eaten alive by the sin and idolatry of the world around you. Just as he longed to save Ahaz too. At this point, Ahaz has everything he needs to trust the Lord, I think. But look at the remarkable gift he has offered in verses 10 and 11. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as shore or high as heaven. What would you have asked for? <laughs> what would you do? Yeah. Paint my name in stars in the sky. Um, or, or at the very least, you get rid of these two armies camped on our front lawn. You would have asked for something bold and big, wouldn't you? A sign that would stop people in their tracks. What's Ahaz's response? It's both shocking and surprising. Verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. <laughs> Maybe it looks to us there as if he's... he's He's being a really, really humble kind of guy. Maybe he's even quoting the Bible there, as Deuteronomy 6.16 tells us that we shouldn't put the Lord to the, to the test. In fact, the Bible really strongly warns us again and again, again against demanding a sign from God. But God has offered Ahaz a sign. This is different. When the Lord comes, say, comes to you saying, come on, my child, ask me for something. <laughs> you ask him for something, just like a child asking for presents at Christmas. You don't hold back. But it seems the day Ahaz doesn't ask because he's, he's already made his mind up to go running to Assyria. So a sign from the Lord would be seriously inconvenient for him. but he's going to get one anyway. And so Isaiah says to him, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord will give you, Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means... Again, you can see it from the footnotes at the bottom of the page. God is with us. Now, if you think it's beginning to look a bit like Christmas there, that's because you, you'll, you'll know or you've maybe heard before that Matthew, in his gospel at the start of the New Testament, quotes this passage, telling us that this prophecy is about the birth of Jesus Christ. But here, the sign is for Ahaz, isn't it? for his day. And so as we read on, actually, into the next chapter in, in Isaiah chapter 8, we find a woman giving birth to a son. But the baby's name isn't Jesus. It isn't even Emmanuel. It is Meher Shalal Hashbaz. 
Now, some of you thought that you were coming up with some pretty original, crazy names for your kids, didn't you? But I tell you, I have never baptized a Meher Shalah Hashbaz before, and I hope I never will have to. <laughs> it doesn't really trip off the tongue. But it seems that this little lad is actually a really good match for the one prophesied in Isaiah 7. He fits. So, if that's the case, how can this prophecy also be about the Lord Jesus? Well, we have to understand that most biblical prophecy is usually fulfilled in far, uh, near and far ways, in, in short and long-term ways. They have, a, have double fulfillments. It's, it's like going walking in the mountains, I think. Have you ever, ever done this? Up, 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 you go, and you go, oh, look, there's, there's, there's the top. We're near, hey, guys, we're nearly at the top. And then you get there, and you go, ah, oh, it was a false summit. As you see, beyond that, there's another one, or maybe even another two or three. As up you go. And so it is here. There's going to be this boy. And even though technically his name isn't Emmanuel, and even though Ahaz would indeed still be gobbled up by the Assyrians because of his lack of faith and trust in God's promises. This boy was going to be a walking sign to God's people that he's still with them, that his words still can be trusted, and that he will protect his people from the dangers that they face and a remnant will return. But ultimately... This prophecy will be fulfilled, the summit of it, if you like, when Jesus is born. He is born of a virgin. He is Emmanuel. He is God come to dwell with us. And one of the key reasons Jesus became God with us is for our reassurance today. Jesus is the ultimate sign that God is still committed to his people that God is passionate about our best interests and will protect us from all of the dangers and the threats that we face. So question, how convinced are you this morning that God is committed to your best interests? Maybe you're here and you're thinking about becoming a Christian, but the one thing that keeps putting you off making that decision is that you've come to realize that it will involve you giving over control of your life to Jesus. Or maybe you're here this morning, you're already following Christ. But if truth be told, you shy away from total dedication because you fear you might miss out on other aspects of life if you do that. How do we know that Jesus has our best interests at heart? We look to the sign of Emmanuel the birth of Jesus, the ultimate Emmanuel, that is the reassurance that we need. Well, here's a slightly different question for us. Can we trust the ways of God when they feel utterly foolish to us, as they did for Ahaz? And as they, let's be honest, sometimes do to us these days? Like what about the fact that Jesus says there's only one way to be saved, for every single person on this planet, wherever they were born, whatever religion that they were brought up in, and that is to put their trust in Jesus. Really? Really? That seems utterly foolish in our culture, doesn't it? 
Or what about the way of salvation? That the only way to heaven is by trusting in Jesus' death on the cross for us. Not, not trying really hard to live a good life and building up as many good works as we can, but trusting that Jesus paid for our sin there so we could escape our just place in hell. Really? Really, how could that be true? The cross is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to everybody else. And what about the, the best way for us to live life? Obeying the commands from this dusty old book? Is that really the way to joy and vitality? Well, when we're tempted to walk away from the ways of God, to distrust the ways of God, where do we look? We look to the sign of Emmanuel. Jesus is the walking evidence that God is for his people and that his word can still be trusted so that we can have faith in his ways even when it seems utterly bizarre and totally bonkers to the people around us. Now, none of us are perfect, are we? It may well be that when pressure is exerted on us as it has been in recent days or weeks or as it may well be in these next few weeks in the run up to Christmas our hearts are revealed to be full of fear and anxiety and even unbelief but don't despair even though that might be your current position it does not need to be your final position God is so so gracious he often exposes our hearts and what's in them, even our unbelief, not to embarrass us, but so that our hearts would be turned and changed and transformed, and so that he might lead us to a place of faith. When we keep Jesus in view, we realize that God is not against us. He's not on our backs. He's by our side. He is with us now and every step of the way as he seeks to lead us into glory. So may we put our trust in him today and every day until that great day. Let me pray for us in that regard. Let's actually have a moment of quiet to pray ourselves. Actually, I think that might be helpful to think this through, to call out to the Lord and, and seek to see and savor Jesus for ourselves. Let's just have a moment of quiet to do that. <coughs> Oh, Lord, in your great mercy, please hear our prayers. Amen.